This week we are in the series of the Parshas of Yetzias Mitzrayim and Parshas Va'era. Of course, things seem to go initially uh, very bad for B'nai Yisrael, but as Hashem says at the end of last week's Parsha, now you will see <coughs> everything is set, everything is primed for the Geula. And indeed, the, the lion's share, if I can borrow an expression from Orov, of the uh, Makos is in Parshas Va'era, seven out of the ten Makos. But it begins with the famous four, what, what are known as the Arba Lashonos of Geula, the four expressions of Geula, what many insist should more correctly be referred to as the four Geulos. That is how the Yerushalmi talks about them, the four Geulos, because Arba Lashonos of Geula has the connotation of four expressions, meaning four ways of expressing the same idea. But Arba Geulos means there are actually four stages in the process, and indeed, each of the Mepharshim, from the Rishonim to the Acharonim, explain in their own way, what exactly is denoted by Vahotseisi, and what is Vahitzalti, what is Vigaalti, and what is Velokarti. Ze Omer Becho, Ze Omer Becho, each one uh, the way that they uh, understand the Psukim. But what I want to focus on momentarily before um, moving into the, the, the body of the Parsha is, is the fifth Geula. The fifth expression of Geula, <coughs> which is, of course, Vehevesi Eschem. Vehevesi Eschem and that is in Pasuk Ches. Perik Vav Pasuk Ches. Vehevesi Eschem I will bring you to the land. Hashem Osasi Esyodila, Seisosol, Avraham Yitzchak Eliyakov, that I have sworn to give to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. <coughs> and as much as in our current state, for example, on Seder night, we focus on the four, because that's where, that's where we're up to, but... Nonetheless, we look in the direction of number five. We have the Koshil Eliyahu. Um, the cup is filled, but not yet drunk, uh, which is as good a depiction of, of where we are uh, as any. But the question that the Orachim Kodesh raises is, we don't see that the people that were addressed by Moshe experienced this fifth stage of Geula. I mean, Moshe gives a message to the Jewish people. It seems uh, directly related to them. I'll take you out. He'll redeem you, give you the Torah. <coughs> and I will bring you to the land. And in the end, they were not brought to the land. Now, obviously, our, our immediate reaction is to say, well, because they made mistakes, as carefully as we have to say it, but you have the, all of these uh, episodes, these mishaps in the wilderness, the miraglim and so on, and therefore they proved un, undeserving of, the, of entering the land. That may be true, but it might not be enough, because this was something that was promised to them. So as much as we would have liked to have been fully deserving of the promise, how do we know that the promise is not fulfilled or is conditional upon us deserving its, its fulfillment? That's a, that's a major question with regards to the things that Hashem tells, says will happen to us. But the Rechaim HaKadosh says that the key to this matter is Pasuk Zion. The key to understanding <coughs> Uh, the fifth stage of Geula, of Vehevesi Eschem, 
is in Pasuk Zion. Because Pasuk Zion starts, I will take you to me as a people, which is number four, and that's Matan Torah. I'll be a God to you. And then it says, interesting words, and you shall know, that I am Hashem your God, who takes you out from the burdens of Mitzrayim. So we have stages one, two, three, four. And before we move on to stage five of the Hevesi, we have these words, and you shall know that it is me, <coughs> I am Hashem your God, who took you out of the burdens of Mitzrayim. What is the role of those words as the bridge? From the first four stages to stage five. Says the Rachaim HaKadosh, their role is that of a condition. A condition precedent. That is to say, the first four stages of Geula are promised unconditionally. In an unqualified may and, and unequivocally. It's going to happen. And all of it did. But then the Pasuk says, well then Hashem says, once I've done those four first four stages for you, taken you out of Mitzrayim in all of its uh, <coughs> aspects, and given you the Torah, at that point there's something that I will be asking of you. And that is to absorb fundamentally the awareness. And you shall know is an instruction. After all of that, you then need to know that it's me who took you out of Mitzrayim. And the point is not only who took you out of Mitzrayim, but, but who, who has, having taken to you, uh, him, you to him as, a, as his people, will continue, therefore, to guide you. That's what's required of you after these first four stages. And if you come through with that, you're ready for stage five. If you have fully absorbed the understanding that Hashem is your God and He's with you and guiding you and protecting you and, and so on and so forth, you are ready for stage five. And then stage five can happen. But if you, if you didn't get that, then stage five is not, is not able to happen yet. Stage five is conditional. Vehevesi is conditional. And therefore, <coughs> what we describe historically as the Jewish people falling with the episode of the Miraglim by sending spies, it's not just, quote-unquote, a terrible thing that they did. In so doing, they proved that they had not significantly or fully enough, sufficiently, absorbed the message of Ani Hashem Elokeichem, who took you out of Mitzrayim. Because if they had, they never would have, the spies never would have been afraid, and the people never would have believed the spies anyway, because had they been fully, fully with this message that Hashem is with us, as Yehoshua and Kalev tried to argue with them. So all of that um, confrontation with these spies is really coming back to the question of, have the Jewish people fulfilled the end of Pasuk Zion in our Parsha? Are they on board, absolutely, with the idea of <coughs> and, and unfortunately, with that first generation, the answer was no, and therefore they were not able to come in. The next generation that grew up were, had, were more time to absorb this idea and were more on board with it, and thus the condition was fulfilled with generation two, and promise number five, which was conditional upon that, 
was, also, was likewise fulfilled in generation two. So it's a very, in terms of Parshanut, you see how Parshanut and history meet. The understanding of those, the significance of those events with the Miraglim. How does it all then scale back to um, the way that all of these things were originally foretold in the very beginning of our Parsha? And if we may add, why is it necessary, <coughs> as much as it may sound like a disarmingly simple question, why is it necessary to know that Hashem is guiding us and, uh, and took us out of Mitzrayim and all of those things to, to absorb that so fully before being able to enter the land? The answer, it seems, as, as so many Mepharshim, each one in their own way in a different uh, um, junctures, explain, because without that awareness, the entry into the land of Israel itself will not be a successful venture. Certainly not guaranteed of success. The goal of entering the land of Israel is it should be a country within which to, to develop and live and thrive by the relationship with Hashem. But if that relationship is not fully set and the Jewish people, had the Jewish people gone into to the land of Canaan, generation one, what we're being told here is it would have been an absolute and more or less immediate disaster. Because with no sense of connection to, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, stam to go into the land, that's not, nothing good will come from that. No great success will come from that. And thus, Hashem says, in order for your stay, for your, for your existence in Eretz Yisrael to be the way that it should be, you need to, to first fully, fully connect uh, the, the, the two of us, and with that, Vehivesi. And that's certainly a message for the ages, not only to understand things as they were, but also things as we hope, as we hope that they will soon again be. So having spoken a bit about the beginning of the Parsha, I want to focus uh, or discuss for a few moments a Pasuk which doesn't seem to be so um, central to our Parsha, but it's actually the first time this Pasuk appears, and I think it's probably the Pasuk that appears most times in the Torah. And that is in Perig Vav, Pasuk Yud, which reads, Vaidaber Hashem el Moshe Lemor. Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying. This is the first, I believe it's some 70 odd times that this Pasuk will appear in the Torah, making it by, by many times over. Uh, the most repeated pasuk in the Torah, Vayidaber Hashem El Moshe Lemor, but it all begins here. And that's why there is discussion in the Rishonim already in Parshas Va'era. We think we have our hands full with the, with the ten plagues, or most of them, but even the Parshanut of what is the meaning of Vayidaber <coughs> Hashem El Moshe Lemor. And specifically, as we can appreciate, the question is that the word Lemor, <coughs> which we, I would say, carefully, uh, conveniently translate as the word saying, which is, which is almost a way of just getting it out of the way or not having to think about it, because whenever a person speaks, they're saying. So, Vayidaber Hashem al-Moshe, Hashem spoke to Moshe, and then let us hear what he said. But Vayidaber Hashem al-Moshe Lemor, what does the word Lemor add? And as we'll see, there's actually quite a machlokus about this. Between Rishonim, the Radak, 
And the Radak discusses this in, his, in one of his Sfarim on Lashon HaKodesh. The Radak has a couple of Sfarim on Lashon HaKodesh. One of them is called Sefer HaShorashim, which as its name suggests, just discusses the roots of, uh, of the various Hebrew words. <coughs> and in the Sefer HaShorashim, the Radak says that the meaning of the word Lemor is, it means what it sounds like it means. Because Lemor is an infinitive. When we say infinitive, it means to do something. Like Lishmor is to guard, or Ligmor is to complete. And Lemor is to say. That's just to, to, to get a, a, a lock on it in terms of the grammar. Lemor is an infinitive, like all those other words, Ledaber, Lomar, and it means to say. But the question is, what to say? Who's to say? Hashem is speaking to Moshe. He's already speaking. So what is the meaning of to say? But the point is, says the Radak, the meaning is that what what Hashem tells Moshe, he wants Moshe then to say to others. To Bnei Yisrael generally. In some cases to Paro or to whoever it is. So it's very interesting, because according to the Radak, therefore, the words Vayidaber Hashem and Moshe Leimor means Hashem spoke to Moshe Leimor for Moshe then to say to whoever it is he's meant to say it to. It's to pass it on, to pass the content on. Now we should note that <clears throat> Chazal certainly understand the word Leimor in this way, or, 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 or are capable of understanding the word Leimor in this way, because they... they Describe it as such. A classic example, the Gemara says in Maseches Brachos and Daf Ches, when Hashem says to Moshe at the end of Chumash Tevarim, where he says, Zos <coughs> Ha'aretz, he shows him the land. Moshe is about to pass away from this world. But before he does so, Hashem shows him the land. Zos Ha'aretz, Hashem Nishbati, L'Avraham, L'Yitzchak, U'Liyakov, Leymor, Now This is the land that I swore to Avraham, Zakin Yaakov, Leymor, to whatever Lemor means, I will give it to your descendants. That's what I said to the Avos. Says the Gemara, Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu Moshe. Says Hashem to Moshe, Lech emor lehem. Go and tell them. You are about to be united with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And when you are, I want you to tell them that the, the, the oath that I took to, to give the land to, 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 the, to them has now been fulfilled through their descendants. Lech emor. That's the Gemara's understanding of the word lemor. So clearly lemor means to say. I'm, giving, I'm telling you to say to them. However, as we know, and there's there, clearly therefore the Gemara explains in this way, but very often the Gemara's arena of commentary or realm of commentary is that of drash. And drash is a whole world in and of itself, a whole realm unto itself. <coughs> the question, therefore, is, is this, does the Gemara mean to say that this is the pshat meaning of Lemor? To say? The Radak is writing on the level of pshat. Presumably, he means this is the pshat of Lemor means to say. So as much as one can induce support from the Gemara, it's, it's qualified support, because perhaps the Gemara means it al derech hadrash. We don't, we don't know, necessarily. Uh, whether the Gemara means to say that is the, the, the simple meaning, the straightforward pshat meaning of the word lemur. Be that as it may, the Ramban, and it's the Ramban on this week's Parsha, on this Pasuk, Shmos Perek Vav, Pasuk Yud, the first time we have this Pasuk. 
he takes issue with, with the Radak. He doesn't quote the Radak by name. He says, Yesh Mefarshim, there are certain uh, commentators, foremost among them are the, are the Radak, is the Radak. <coughs> and Ramban takes issue with this approach that Lemor means to say to others for two reasons. And we'll see that they will, that they will meet up, but for two reasons. Al Rishon Rishon. What is the first problem? Says Ramban, there are many psukim where it is impossible to explain that they more means to say to others. And I will give you two examples, says Ramban. Number one, when Lavan catches up with Yaakov in Parshas Vayetze, and he says, you know, I really, really could do you harm. I'm well capable to, uh, of doing you harm. However, emesh amar lemor. But the but the God of your fathers last night he said to me, lemor, which we'll leave untranslated. Be careful. Do not do anything bad to Yaakov. So, <coughs> Lavan's words, he says that Hashem gave him a message lemor, but but lemor means to say, in that instance. To say to whom? He's not, meant, he's not meant to pass this message on to anyone. It's a message for him. Hashem is talking to Lavan. Do not do anything bad to Yaakov. And Lavan will say, who should I tell this to? Who's the message for? For you. So what's the more? There is no to say. That's the first example. It's a more which seems to have nowhere to go forward. Similarly, in Parshas Korach, and these are two of presumably many examples that the, the Ramban uh, could bring, uh, after so much has, gone, has happened with, uh, <coughs> with Korach, and he's died, and his 250 men have died, and, and, and there's a plague, and, and, and people come to Moshe, Vayomu b'nei Yisrael leimor, they come to Moshe leimor, and say, we're all, everyone's dying all over the place, what's going to be with us? Again, leimor. It's, it's them talking to Moshe. <coughs> They're not asking Moshe to tell anyone. It's between them and Moshe. So these two examples illustrate the idea that, that sometimes Lemor has nowhere to go. It's not to tell someone else. So what then does it mean? And the second answer, <coughs> pardon me, a, sec- a second t- uh, question or direction of question of the Ramban is that even when Moshe is meant to tell others, it's still difficult to say that that's what the word lemor means. Why? Because in so many of those instances, the very next words in the, in the Torah are Daber el b'nei Yisrael alehem. Say, say the following to the Jewish people. So if the word lemor means to say, so lemor already means I want you to say this. So what then is the, is the ensuing phrase which features so often in the Torah. Therefore, Ramban uh, does not concur with the approach of the Radak. How would the Radak answer the Ramban's seemingly very serious uh, questions, compelling questions, <coughs> that we would have to uh, consult the Mepharshim on Radak? But the Ramban, for his part, says, therefore, I do not, I do not agree that the word lemor means to say. <coughs> Rather, I feel that the word lemor, which really just, it, 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 it's, what is it adding? It adds emphasis. Lemor, saying, meaning something's being said here. And, and what does that mean? 
I mean, I mean something is always being said. If, if, if one person is speaking, something is always being said. True. But in other words, if you add the word lay more, saying you're really showing that something ex- significant is, is being said here, beyond just A speaking to B. And for this reason, says, <coughs> uh, says the Ramban, we will find that as a rule, uh, when Hashem speaks to Moshe, we have Vayida Be'er Hashem El Moshe Lemor. That's something that you, you almost never find with, with, with any other Navi. There's a couple of exceptions with Yeshua, and maybe Yeshua himself is uh, you know, as, as somehow an extension of, of Moshe, but the, you never find it with other Navim. Vayidaber Hashem El whoever, Lemor. Why is it only by Moshe? Because it's to emphasize the unique level of communication between Hashem and Moshe, the unique level of prophecy that Moshe enjoyed. That's Lemor. When Hashem speaks to Moshe, it's Lemor, right? Something's being said on a level that, that, that is above and beyond the, the way it would be communicated to, to anyone else. So that's, that's the type of, um, it's, I wouldn't say it's atmospheric, but it's, it's emphatic in the sense that we, we get a sense of, this, of the significance of what's being said. And for this reason, says Ramban, Lemor can emphasize all sorts of, of different things, but it's all coming, it all comes back to a question of emphasis. So the two questions that we raised before, Lavan, when Lavan says to Yaakov that, that, that Hashem said to me, Emesh, last night, Lemor, so why does he add the word Lemor? Because there is a certain emphasis, says Ramban, namely, he, he, he told me in no uncertain terms. In other words, it was a crystal clear message. Do not say, do anything wrong to, to Yaakov. It wasn't the kind of a message that I could maneuver around or negotiate with or somehow uh, find my way through. No, it was a more message. Absolutely no way. So, so that's the love one uses this expression of more in order to denote and to, to, to indicate the, level, the unequivocal nature of the message, do not do any harm to Yaakov. I think parenthetically, perhaps one may add, although more Adarach Hadrush. As far as we know, this is the, only, the first and only time, the first and last time that Hashem appeared to Lavan. He doesn't really go down as, as one of the people that Hashem really communicated with on an ongoing basis for obvious reasons. So, the, the, but if Hashem is speaking to him here, why? For whose benefit? For Yaakov's benefit. So this is really the one time that Lavan gets a message from Hashem. It could be that in keeping with the character of someone like Lavan, he, he would be inclined to, to, to milk it for all it's worth. Meaning to, to make as much of it as he can. As if to say, you know, Hashem, I mean, it, Hashem appeared to me. And he didn't just stam appear to me, which, you know, he might do to other Nevi'im. But, you know, people of my stature, it was a Lemor. I mean, you know, when, when, when you think about the type of people that Hashem will speak to Lemor, examples that come to mind, or pre-examples, Moshe Rabbeinu and the like, I mean, that's the type of relationship, of, of level of communication that I have with Hashem. So, uh, once he, as much as he's, all he's being told is words of reprimand and rebuke, nonetheless, as long as it was Lemor, there's no, there's no such thing as a, bad, as a bad communication if it's on the level of Lemor. So, perhaps uh, that, that's how Lovan would like to to portray. In other words, Hashem, you know, castigated me and criticized me, 
but he did so on a really high level. I think, I think that that should be noted uh, for, for the record. And coming back to Korach. <coughs> so again, the people, after all of these tragedies, and the people said to Moshe, Lemor, Vayomer Ha'aman Moshe, Lemor, Hen Gavanu, Kulanu, Avatnu, we're all, why does it say Lemor? Once again, says Ramban, not to say to anyone, Moshe doesn't need to say this to anyone, but it's emphasizing. And what is it emphasizing? The, the, the level of, um, of trauma of the people of the intensity with which they said it. This was not a casual conversation. People have been dying all over the place as a result of Korach's rebellion. So when the people come, there is a certain note of urgency in what they're saying. This is a really impassioned message, and therefore it carries with it the word lemor. So these are very interesting um, <coughs> uh, discussions, and it doesn't get bigger than, than Radak and Ramban, and it doesn't get more basic than, than the most basic question of what is the meaning of the word lemor in the Pasuk, Vaidaber Hashem El Moshe Lemor. So we, we move from here to the Makos, and I'd like to take a look at a Pasuk that deals with the fourth Makkah, Arov, specifically for the light that it's would seem to shed on the first three makos. And as we'll see, there's a major discussion once again among the Rishonim. So we, we will begin in Perik Ches, Pasuk Tet Zayin. That's where the, uh, the mak of Arav is being predicted. Um, <coughs> Pasuk Tet Zayin, Hashem says to Moshe, Hashem Baboker, uh, awaken early, paro, and 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 an issue is the famous shalachami via avduni, because if you do not send them out, I will unleash on you es heorov the orov the, the the mixture of um, animals, and they'll be all over the place. And that's, in a sense, that the Pasuk that we'll be uh, focusing on through the lens of the Ibn Ezra. Pasuk Yudches, Vehif Leisi, Haflaya, I will distinguish. Bayomahu, on that day, as Eretz Goshen, the land of Goshen, I will set that aside, Asher Ami Omedaleah, that's where my people live. That's where the Jewish people are in Goshen. Livilti Yosham Arov, so there will be no arov there. Well, <coughs> again, to, to summarize, what has Moshe done? Uh, he has come and predicted the, the fourth Makkah of Arov and then stated that the land of Goshen, where the Jewish people are, will be set aside from this plague. Says Ibn Ezra, looking at, these, at this Pasuk, would, the conclusion would seem to be that the first three makos did not distinguish between the Mitzrayim and the Jewish people. This is the first time we have such a statement. Vihif I will divide between them. There was no such statement, not with Dam, not with Tzvardea, and not with Kinnim. <coughs> Which, in, which therefore would seem to indicate that those first three makos, there was no distinction, and they also affected the Jewish people. 
Now he adds uh, to soften, if one could say, In other words, it seems that they affected somewhat the Jewish people, obviously not to the same degree. I'm not sure exactly if it's, why it's obvious, but, but at this stage nothing is obvious anymore. But uh, says Ibn Ezra, it seems quite clear that they were affected, but not to the same punishing degree. Of the uh, that the Egyptians were, but they were affected because the first mention we hear of Vehiflesi is in Pasuk, uh, is in the fourth Makkah of Arov. So says Ibn Ezra. As we can appreciate, there were, there will be those who take issue with this Ibn Ezra, uh, and one of the. Um, his opponents here, is the Radvaz. Now the Radvaz, Rabbi David Ibn Zamra, who's one of the late Rishonim, he's living in the 1500s, 1400s, he uh, does not have a commentary on the Torah, but we have thousands of tshuvas from him, thousands of responsa. And as is the case with, with the Meshivim, they answer the questions that are given. So someone asked him a question. What do you think about this Ibn Ezra? So then now it's part of the Chubas of the Radvaz because he responds and says what he thinks. <coughs> and says Radvaz, this is in Simon Taf Taf Gimel, uh, response to 803. I do not, absolutely do not concur with the Ibn Ezra's notion that the first three Makos affected the Jewish people as well. And the truth is that I'll, I'll begin with the Psukim. I'll begin with the Psukim. Because if you have a look, for example, in Makas Dam, okay, there is, it's true, there is no uh, explicit statement that the, 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 the Jewish people will be separated from the Mitzrayim. But look at the Psukim. In Perik Zion, Pasuk Kaf Aleph. <coughs> this is when the, the plague of blood is being predicted. And it says, So all the fish in the Nile will, 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 will die, and then that will putrefy the Nile. Mitzrayim, as a group of people, are the Egyptian people. As Unkelis translates, Mitzrayim, the Egyptians. The Egyptians will not be able to drink from the Nile, implying the Egyptians. Only, not B'nai Yisrael. And likewise, in Pasuk Kafdalit, Vayachbaru kol Mitzrayim, Sevivos Hayor. All Mitzrayim, and once again, all Mitzrayim means the people of Mitzrayim, the Egyptians. They were the ones who were affected. What about Svardea? What about plague number two? Well, in Perik Zion, Pasuk Kafches. So firstly, it is, it is uh, predicted for Paro in Pasuk Kavches, and they will come in your house, wherever you are, Paro, they will be. The Pasuk Kavches, with you, and your people, your nation, your servants, So that is explicitly predicted for Paro and his people and his servants. That's black on white. Now we should note, 
that there are those who respond to this proof. The, the Ibn Ezra has commentaries on him, not only for the things he said, but also to explain what, what he says. It really needs to be unraveled um, often. But one of the Mepharshim on the Ibn Ezra says that perhaps the Ibn Ezra will understand that Avadecha, back in, back in Pasuk Kaftes, it's a bit of a bold uh, parshan uh, stroke here, but Uvecha means you, Uveamcha and your people, Uvechal Avadecha. Who's Avadecha? The Jewish people. So in other words, Amcha, talking to Paro, your people are for sure the Egyptian people, but Avadecha might include all your servants, and that might include all the, all the, the, the Jewish people, as, as per the Ibn Ezra says, that they were all affected. It's a little difficult, because there are other places where... Um, if you go back to Pasuk Kavches, if we try and do justice to, to, to this idea, Pasuk Kavches, when it talks about the, uh, the, the plague of frogs, the Sharatz Hayor Tzvardeim, Ve'alu Uva'u Be'Vesecha, they'll come in your house, Uva'chadam Ishkavcha Ve'amitasecha, right where you, where you sleep, on your bed, Uva'veis Avodecha Uve'amecha. So it's interesting to note that in that Pasuk, Avodecha, your servants, are mentioned before your people. And that's some interesting, because in Pasuk Kavches, it mentions your servants before your people. In the very next Pasuk, it mentions your people and then your servants. Now, th- that itself re- requires attention. But what's very difficult now is to say that Avodecha means the Jewish people, because in Pasuk Kavches, the plague is mentioned as, tar- as affecting the Jewish people before it even affects the, the Egyptians. It's one thing to say that it was brought for the Egyptians and there was no distinction made. But, but, but uh, the, the, the receiving address for the plague is your servants, i.e. the Jewish people, and then the Egyptian people? That seemingly is, is, is uh, very, very difficult. Either way. So, and, and therefore, the Radvaz is quite firm on this notion that you see from these psukim, it's always uh, speaking about um, uh, affecting and afflicting the Egyptian people, both Dam and both Tzvardea. Now, what about Kinim, the third, of, the third in, the, in the three? So there, the Pasuk doesn't say. However, says Radvaz, you know, having, having seen so much clearly for the first two makos, where it says you and your people, etc., even if it doesn't say anything in the, in the third one, it's, it's pretty clear that the pattern has been established. It's about the, it affects the Egyptians and not the, and not the Jewish people. And with that, he, he parts ways, or dis, more correctly, disputes outright the notion of the Ibn Ezra that the, the, that the first three Makos also affected the Jewish people. Now, the truth is, <coughs> the Radvaz has, has taken issue with the Ibn Ezra purely on the basis of Psukim, without consulting anything else. But the truth is that clearly as we move into the world of, um, you know, of the Mishnah, Pirkei Avos, we, what do we see there? In the fifth Pirkei of Pirkei Avos, which has all the lists of the tens and the sevens and, and the fours, etc. So one of the tens, Asara Nisim Nasu Lavuseinu B'Mitzrayim. 
Ten miracles were performed for our, our, our ancestors in, in Mitzrayim. What were those ten miracles? The Apostle goes on to say ten makos were brought against the Egyptians in Mitzrayim. And the Rambam and others, I mean Yonah and others, <coughs> explain that these, that these then are the ten miracles that, that uh, happened to our ancestors. The ten miracles are that as the ten plagues are coming, and these are plagues that should naturally affect everyone, miraculously, none of them did. So for, the ten, for each of the ten plagues that affects the Egyptians, <coughs> it's a miracle for the Jewish people that it didn't, that it didn't affect them. But the Mishnah says ten, which basically tells us that ten out of ten were only for the Egyptians and not for the Jewish people. Which, which is seemingly a very serious uh, question on the Ibn Ezra, Mefurish in the, in the Mishnah. That's what the Rambam says. And, the, and then the Rambam proceeds to bring the same sukkim that the Radvazd is. You see, when it comes to blood, it's only the Egyptians. When it comes to frogs, it's only the Egyptians, just like the Radvaz. Interestingly, when it comes to Kinim, number three, so the Rambam says, the Pasuk doesn't say either way he would affect it, but we have a Kabbalah. This is the Rambam in his commentary to the Mishnah. We have a Kabbalah. And the, the tradition is <coughs> that actually <coughs> there, was, there was kinim everywhere. But it didn't in any way um, afflict the Jewish people. They, they were present everywhere. That's, so says the Kabbalah, which the Rambam brings. So it was, and maybe that's where the, the Pasuk doesn't emphasize so much that it's only in Egypt because it, for the Egyptians. They were kind of around, but they didn't really affect in the way that lice can affect. The, the Jewish people. That's an interesting kind of middle, middle ground with regards to the third Makkah. But if Shimon Schwab, in his commentary, Mayan Beis Shareva, he says that seemingly support for this Kabbalah, so to speak, <coughs> comes from the well-known Medrash. In the beginning of Parshas Vayechi, Yaakov asks not to be buried in Mitzrayim. I mean, he really asks for, for two things, not in Mitzrayim and yes, in Eretz Canaan. And there's a number of reasons why he doesn't want to be buried in Eretz Mitzrayim. And one of them, as Rashi cites from the Medrash, he didn't want Kinnim around him. He didn't want Kinnim underneath where he is. And it's very interesting that that was, I mean, what really needs to ponder the, 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 the full impact or import of, of what that means. But neither, neither, either way, Yaakov doesn't want it. So Shimon Shrab says, you know, I mean, seemingly there's a very simple solution. They live in Goshen. Bury him in Goshen. In other words, if there's no Kinnim where the Jewish people are, so then, so then if, if he's buried in a place where he lives, which is most likely, it shouldn't be a problem anyway. Apparently, it would be a problem. <coughs> because as, as the, the Rambam's Kabbalah, the Kabbalah cited by the Rambam says, there were kinim everywhere, even in Goshen. They didn't, uh, uh, again, they didn't afflict the Jewish people, but they were present there. So there, w- there will be nowhere where, in, in, in Mitzrayim where there are no kinim. So that's kind of an interesting confluence of the well-known Rashi about Yaakov's request not to be buried in Mitzrayim and the Rambam's Kabbalah with regards to uh, <coughs> with regards to kin, the, the third Makkah of Kin. So having really responded quite forcefully to the Ibn Ezra's contention, who says that the first three plagues also affected to a certain degree, afflicted to a certain degree the Jewish people, and having emphatically stated that that is not the case, the enduring question will be, however, so why does the Pasuk only talk about Vihiflesi, which is to uh, separate the two, in number four, 
in Arav. I mean, that's where the, the Ibn Ezra got, got going from. It sounds like only from plague number four you have this division. Sounds like prior to that, one, two, and three, there was no division. Now, if you say that even one, two, and three did not affect, affect the Jewish people, why is the distinction only mentioned in, in, with regards to the fourth Makkah of Arov? But here, Rabbi Shimon Schwab says, says as follows. If you look at the Pasuk, and again, we're, we're just coming back to Perik Eches, Pasuk Yudches. That's where the, the Ibn Ezra began. It was launched from, from Pasuk Yudches. Vihiflesi, and I will distinguish. But distinguish between what and what. Bayom hahu es eretz Goshen asher ami omed aleha. I will distinguish between, I will set aside the land of Goshen. That's where my people are. <coughs> Says of Shimon Schwab. The meaning of this Pasuk is not to say that unlike the, uh, the earlier Makos, this will not affect the Jewish people. None of, them, none of them affected the Jewish people. But the meaning of this Pasuk is that not only will the Jewish people be spared the Makkah, the land of Goshen will be spared the Makkah. Because that's where my people live. And that's what the Pasuk says. Goshen. I will set aside the land of Goshen. That's where my people live. But what is the full implication of this, of this distinction? that anyone who is in the land of Goshen will be spared the plague. Jew, non-Jew, Israelite, Egyptian, anyone who's in the land of Goshen, that's where the Jewish people live. It's off limits to Arov. And the point is, even people who are not Jewish, but who live in Goshen, will also be spared the plague. Why? Because this is where the Jewish people live. And we know (coughs) that there were Egyptians who lived in Goshen. After all, we were told in last week's Parsha that uh, Shem's, and, uh, last week's and next week's, that when the time comes to leave Egypt, so people ask to borrow from who? From their neighbors. Visha'ala isha mishchenta. She will ask from her shchena, from her neighbor, meaning her neighbor in Goshen. The Jewish people live in Goshen. And, so, and they, have, they have Egyptian neighbors. We, we, we say the pasuk, but we don't. We, we sometimes fail to to, to, to catch what's, what's being said here. I mean, Jews and non-Jews live together in Goshen. It's kind of a, it's a Jewish place, but there's non-Jews who live there. And moreover, the Korban Pesach, which we know what, what's that all about? <coughs> it's about Pasach, right? Hashem uh, skipped over the houses of the Jews when, when he was doing what? When when he was. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, 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 striking the first one of the non-Jews. But what's a Jewish house doing in between? And we, we see that, that, that they, had, they had non-Jewish neighbors. And this then is the Chiddush. Again, not that the Jewish people would be spared. That's true from the very beginning. That's true from plague number one. But the Chiddush of plague number four is that even where the Jewish people are, everyone will be spared. And what's so interesting about this <coughs> is that this was a great boost for all of the Egyptians who lived in Goshen. Goshen now became the place that everyone wanted to live. Which was an absolute reversal <coughs> of, the, of the, the ghetto of Goshen, where no one would ever go there. The Jewish people, there's something wrong with them, and that's where they live. And, and what could be <coughs> more of a sting to Paro that the best and the smartest among the Egyptians started to say, well, I think we should move to Goshen. I mean, there's something very, very special about that place. 
So, so that's very interesting. This is this is Shimon Schwab's explanation of what of what was uh, introduced with plague number four. Um, not nationality, <coughs> but geography. And moreover, he, he concludes a classic conclusion. We've seen this from from the Meshachachma already in, in in recent years. Amazingly, that uh, after the plague of Orof, it's, it's such a chap. After the plague of Orof. So Paro calls Moshe and says, I'm prepared for you to have your festival, but I want it to be, in, I want it to be here in Egypt. And Ba'aretz doesn't mean what we call Aretz. It means in this land. Don't, don't go out into the Midbar. Don't go out into the wilderness. You can find a place here. What's behind that, that, that offer? So we understand on a simple level that it's, it's, he's being worn down. Okay, don't go to the Midbar, but somewhere here. But says Reb Shimon Schwab, no, there's more to it than that. Because really what he's saying is, why do you want to go to the Midbar? What's wrong with Egypt? Why can't you have your festival in Egypt? Well, as far as you're concerned, Egypt is a contaminated place. So you need to, to go into the, to the wilderness, which is like a place which is free of any of the Egyptian uh, contamination. Well, as we've just all experienced with this plague of the wild animals, Goshen is an amazing place for the Jewish people. I mean, you can see divine uh, supervision. It's, it's, it protects the entire place. So there you have your holy place. No need, to, no need to, to create a new one in the Midbar. You have one right at home in the land of Goshen. So in other words, <coughs> what he means to say is it's specifically the experiences of the fourth plague of Orov, which set aside Goshen as such a special place. So Pharaoh says, great, so then you found your special place to bring a Corban. And that's why he, he has that concession at that stage. So that is a major discussion uh, among the Mepharshim with regards to the first three plagues. And I'd like to conclude by taking a look at the at the, th- at the third of the three, at Makas Kinim. <coughs> and uh, uh, as we can appreciate, quite a bit to say. And that is in Perik Ches, Pasuk, beginning with Pasuk Yud Base. Okay, how does it begin? So Moshe says to tell Aaron, Neteus matra, stretch out your hand, Bahakas of our arts, and and strike the strike the, the dirt, Mitzrayim, and it will be lice everywhere in Mitzrayim. So the first note, noteworthy uh, point in the Pasuk is that Moshe is told to tell Aaron to do this. As we know, it's a very well-known Rashi, but really uh, worthwhile remembering, just uh, so, so that it just shouldn't become part of the things that we uh, gloss over. Moshe, in principle, is, is the default one to, to be the one to perform the makas, but he can't perform, not the first, second, or third, because of Hakara Satov, because he needs to, he, he has a debt of gratitude. Firstly, to the Nile. The Nile saved him. He was put as a baby on the Nile. So the first two makas involved hitting the Nile. You can't hit the Nile if the Nile saved you. <coughs> Which for us already seems quite extreme. The Nile didn't really put itself out for Moshe. It's, it, we're not aware that it has, there's anything to it other than if you put a, something that floats on the water, it will, flo- it will float. But, but, but nonetheless... The level of sensitivity that's required means, means you can't strike it, not something that saved you. But all of it assumes a completely different level, and all of this is in Rashi, with the third makkah, because that involves striking the land, the dirt. What's the dirt got to do with anything? <clears throat> because the dirt also, Moshe can't strike the dirt, because when he killed the Mitzri, he buried him in the dirt. Now here, it's, it's, a, it's a greater chizish. 
<laughs> for a number of reasons. Firstly, I mean, is this the place? The place that he's striking is the place where he buried the Mitzri? No, all dirt is off, is off limits now because, because one patch of dirt uh, helped him once. I mean, that's, very, that's a real uh, extension. And moreover, the dirt didn't really help him in the end because <coughs> as much as he buried the Mitzri, but Dustin and Aviram saw, and they, they um, told Paro, so within a day he's running for his life anyway. So uh, as results go, it didn't really help. So what, what, what are we left to say except that, that, that it tried or it did its best or uh, these are things that one can't really say. And, and still, you can't hit the dirt. I mean, the, the, it, it's, it's a real, it's a schooling in terms of, of um, what it means to be sensitive to where, where a person has received kindness on, on any level, to be um, cognizant of that. It's also interesting that what Aaron is told to do is two things. And again, we, we, we see this so often in the Makkas, we, we, we might fail to take note of it. He's told to stretch out his hand and, to, and to, hit the, to hit the dirt. Why does he hit the dirt? To turn it into, into lice. But why does he stretch out his hand? What's that doing? Is it doing anything? Is that just a preparation? In other words, if you don't stretch out your hand, it won't be like a, a gazun to hit on, 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 uh, on the dirt. That, that's it. It's a, it's a wind-up for the... For the for, the, for striking the, the, the earth. <coughs> it says, says Ramban, no. This is going to happen in all of Egypt. So the very first thing that happens is, is that he extends his hand in all directions as if, to, say, as if to, to map out the scope of what will be affected here. So that when he hits then, which is the second thing he does, it then extends to all those places. So that extending of the hand really is, is what allows, so to speak, in terms of the, 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 the act, um, to, to, to not just remain where it is, but to, to spread in all directions as he extended his hand in all directions. Very interesting Ramban. Of course, <coughs> what's famous about this third plague is that the Khartoumim basically give up at this stage. In other words, they've tried their hand for number one and number two. Uh, after a fashion, they've been able to replicate uh, you know, the blood and the frogs. But when it comes to this one, nothing doing. They tried. They tried. <coughs> and did this, their, their normal actions, also to produce kinim, or some say to produce kinim, some say to get rid of kinim. Either way, nothing was moving. Uh, they couldn't do it. And at that point, what a moment. Paro's own advisors, his own sorcerers, this is, this is the finger of God. They couldn't do it. Why couldn't they do it? <coughs> so there's different explanations, in, even from Chazal. I mean, these, this is the technology of these things that we're not so familiar with. Uh, some say that, that uh, which Rashi quotes actually, it's a Gemara Sanhedrin, that, that Kishuf, forces of sorcery, however they work, they cannot affect something that's smaller in size than, than a barley corn. Pachos kisa'ora. It's not considered a significant entity enough for them to be able to, to take hold of it. Interestingly, as the Maharal points out in the Gur'arie, the halachas of Tumah also recognize as the absolute minimum that could receive, that could receive or generate Tumah a bone the size of, of a barley corn. And, and the forces of Tumah and the forces of, of Kishuf obviously have a lot in common. <coughs> Others point to an, an idea elsewhere in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, in order for Kishuf to work, so, so the 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 the, the 
his, he, he needs to be connected to the ground. He, somehow he draws force from the ground, which of course is not applicable here. If the entire ground has turned to lice, so then tr- go find it. And therefore they, they found themselves unable. At that point they basically conceded defeat. Etzba Elohim. And we should realize that when they, at this number three, they, they call it a day. And they realize that they can't replicate these things. The recognition of Etzba Elohim is not only for this third plague, but at the end of the day, it's really about all of them. In other words, they tried their hand for number one and two. They were able to somehow uh, make a respectable showing for themselves, but they realized they're out of their league. This is something else entirely. And, and therefore, the whole thing is Etzba Elohim. As, and the same is true, therefore, retroactively for the first two plagues. And also, it goes for everything that's to follow. The whole thing is Etzba Elohim. And the truth is, says the Ben Melech, Reb Leib Minzburg, we see this from the Pesach Haggadah. One of the sections in the Pesach Haggadah, which uh, I think people probably go through a bit quicker than, than the others, are the calculations of the Makos in Mitzrayim and then on the Yamsuv. And it starts relatively uh, simple. <coughs> that is to say, there were 10 Makos on the, uh, in the Mitzrayim and then 50 by the Yamsuv. Where does that come from? Says the Haggadah, because with, with reference to Mitzrayim, with the Makos, it says, Etzba Elohim. One finger. But when it comes to, to Kriyas Yamsuf, it says, We saw Hashem's hand. A hand has five fingers. So if, if the one finger is ten in Mitzrayim, there were ten. So by the Yamsuf, there were fifty. And that's how it begins. And then it becomes uh, forty to two hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty, uh, with all the, the um, however that's uh, all understood. But what's interesting is, and what one may ask, and before Hashem do ask, th- they said this at number three. Etzba Elohim was said at plague number three. We're not talking about ten plagues. So if a hand has got five fingers, so maybe there's 15 plagues. I mean, it's five times three. Or maybe they only meant it about this particular one. So which means that the the hand is five times one. So why does the Haggadah say that there were 50, which is five times ten? Says the says the Rebbe Minsberg, we see very clearly the full understanding of what they're saying is None of this, all of this is basically coming from, 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 from a place that's beyond us, uh, a force that's much higher than us, not only number three. Looking back, even one and two, and whatever's going to come, we're pretty sure it's also. So it's a statement about all ten. So if the finger is basically ten, the, 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 then, then the hand is, is, uh, is fifty, as the Haggadah says. Here, too, once again, Ibn Ezra um, has what to say. And Ibn Ezra says... I don't think that this is a statement of recognition by the Khartoumim. It's almost like this is a, if one could borrow a more contemporary expression, like a, a Kodak moment. <laughs> they finally said, Etzba Elohim hi. If only one could capture that moment, and uh, etc. Says Ibn Ezra, they're not recognizing that it comes from Hashem. Etzba Elohim means that they're saying, we have no idea where this is from. Elohim, the word Elohim means a force. Now, of course, we refer to Hashem as Elohim, as the ultimate force. But Elohim, a judge can be a force, an angel could be, could be Elohim, judge can be Elohim. So Etzba Elohim, in other words, they had to admit that they couldn't replicate it, but they were not prepared to ascribe it to, to, to Moshe's God. So where did it come from? Somewhere else. Freak of nature, or freak of unnature. 
but it's amazing because even faced with 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 clearly they're in the season of the plagues and this is beyond their capabilities but to but to recognize it that that Moshe is right no what do you ascribe it to some other force unnamed unknown but nothing to do with what we're talking about it's amazing to be able to say that. And why does the Ibn Ezra say that they that understand it in this way? For two reasons. First, he says Ibn Ezra, Paro has already begun to refer to Hashem as Hashem. In the, in the, the second plate, he says, Hatiu el Hashem, Davant Hashem, Yudke Vavke. But here they don't say Etzba Hashem, they say Etzba Elohim. And that's the first thing, because they're looking to move away from Hashem. It's just some force. These things happen sometimes. It's bad timing. We've had a bad year as it is, and and, and things just got worse, but it has nothing to do with Moshe. And secondly, says Ibn Ezra, it's also interesting that that, uh, this plague number three, they weren't warned. It just happened. Now, the Pasuk describes that Hashem told Moshe, yeah, hit the ground, or Aaron should hit the ground, that it happened. But from their point of view, they received no warning. That's part of their punishment. They didn't even deserve a warning the third time around. But from their perspective, what do they say? Even Moshe didn't know it was coming. If it's really coming from his God, he would have told us about it. But he didn't. Even he doesn't know it's coming. This is Etzba Elohim. And therefore, when the Pasuk says, Vayichazak leiv paro, Vayichazak leiv paro means paro leiv was strengthened by the words of his advisors. They gave him chizuk. Paro says, what do you make of this? Nothing to do with Moshe. Thank you. So all I needed to hear. Which means the words now go on Moshe and Aaron. I listened to my advisors. They've they've got it all worked out. And I'm not listening to Moshe. But responding to the Responding to the Ibn Ezra, once again, is Ramban. These are the major, major discussions of, uh, of Parshas Va'era. <coughs> and the first thing says Ramban, it's, there's no question that this was an admission on their part that Moshe is right. You never refer to a, 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 a natural phenomena or any type of phenomena <coughs> as a finger or a hand unless it's being directed at you. That's a very interesting thing. When you talk about the hand, right? A hand or a finger. A finger is pointing. It's a message from someone to you. If it's a natural phenomena, so then no one's pointing at anyone. It's just happened. So they never would have said the word etzba <coughs> if, if they... Um, if they, if they were just saying it's a, free, it's a freak of nature. No, no, etzba, someone's pointing at us. Someone's saying something to us. It's Moshe's God. <coughs> and as per the, the Ibn Ezra's contention, why would they use the word Elohim and not the same name Yudke Vavke? Paro's already begun to use it. So we know who they're talking about. Says Ramban very simply. Paro uses it when he's talking to Moshe. Because Moshe insists that that's where it's come. But, but, but when the Egyptians talk among themselves, they're not going to use a, a Moshe's term for, 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 for God. If they're more used to Elohim, that's what they're going to use. And that's why it says Elohim. But they really are referring to Hashem. <coughs> and and it, it, it was an admission that, that Moshe is right. And that's why it says Ramban, you will never again hear the Khartoumim uh, being called in. To replicate the plagues, it, they've admitted they've admitted defeat. According to the Ibn Ezra, they didn't admit defeat. They said this has nothing to do with the plagues. We're at your service for if, if the plagues ever come back. But says Ramban, no, they admitted defeat and they're, they're out. They're out of the game. So then, when when Paro is just in conclusion now, when Paro's heart is hardened, what what makes his heart hardened? We don't know anymore because they're they're admitting defeat. 
So one could say simply, yeah, so the hardening of power's heart is in spite of all of that, in spite of all of that. But what allowed him to harden his heart? Two classic lines from, from Rabbi Yosef Bechor, Rabbeinu Yosef Bechor Shor, which is, uh, again, one of the great uh, Rishonim on the Parsha. And it says, interesting, Bechazakli Paro, Paro's heart was hardened, we never find that he asked Moshe to take the kinim away, as he did with the frogs. You know why? Says says Bechorshor. The, the plague of lice affected the dirt. Where does Paro live? In the palace. Paro doesn't have dirt in his palace. He has a marble floor. And they sweep it regularly. There's no dirt in Paro's house. So there's no lice in Paro's house. So Paro doesn't mind. As long as he stays indoors, keeps the door closed, it's a relatively trouble-free week for Paro. What about his people? They live in the dirt. But Paro doesn't live with his people. Paro lives in Qatar. So if, 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 the Jew, if the Egyptian people are suffering, that's not Paro's concern. The plague of frogs came into his house, so now, so now it's a concern. It's an amazing limit how things, uh, certain things have not changed that much at all. <coughs> but for this week, Paro says, it's a relatively good week. I've had to keep the doors closed, but that's probably for the best anyway. Um, and, and it isn't until the Makkas begin to affect Paro again that he starts to, to ask Moshe uh, to, to, to take them away. Thus, continuing the progression towards the Geula, which is described as its culmination in next week's Parsha Mitz Hashem, as we will we'll meet again then. We should uh, we see the replication of all these wonderful things with our own Geula, which should come in Meherav Yamin Amin.